Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. I'm Tom Williams. I've had conversations with scientists that go something like this. I say a significant percentage of Americans and Utahns don't believe in human-caused climate change, and they say, but they should. The science is overwhelming. But they don't, and if effective political action is going to happen, they'll need to be convinced. Well, they should, but they don't, but they should, and so forth. While it's not scientists' primary job to convince non-believers, I sense frustration on the part of those who see climate change as a significant problem. Today, we're going to uh, talk to a couple of marketing experts to talk about how to effectively sell climate change or reframe the conversation or talk across the divide. And uh, wherever you come down on this issue, we'd love to hear from you. The toll-free number is 1-800-826-1495. And uh, you can join us, as I mentioned before, at upraxis at gmail.com. We have with us in studio Dr. Edwin Stafford. He's Associate Department Head and Professor in Department of Management at Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. He's a professor of marketing, researcher, public speaker, news commentary writer, and documentary film producer. Uh, his films include Wind Uprising and, uh, and uh, the sequel, I always forget, Scaling Wind, Scaling wind on, uh, on Wind Power. Uh, Edwin Stafford, welcome back to the program. Great. Thank you, Tom. We've talked electric cars and a few other cool things. Uh, glad to have you back. And uh, joining us on the phone line is uh, Andrew Hoffman. Dr. Hoffman is uh, the wholesome uh, U.S. Professor of uh, Sustainable Enterprise at the University of Michigan. That position holds a joint appointment at the School of Natural Resources and Environment and the Ross School of Business. And uh, his uh, books include How Culture Shapes the Climate Change Debate. That's uh, published uh, this year from Stanford University uh, Press. Andrew Hoffman, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. So let me uh, let me start with uh, with Andy Hoffman. Um, I'm uh, well. Well, let's let's back up. Let me start with. I'm not sure if we have that clip from President Obama. So this is President Obama from just this week. He's he's rolling out a big uh, climate change initiative. Let's hear what he had to say. And today we're here to announce America's clean power plan, a plan two years in the making, and the single most important step America has ever taken in the fight against global climate change. And today, after working with states and cities and power companies, the EPA is setting the first ever nationwide standards to end the limitless dumping of carbon pollution from power plants. Over the next few years, each state will have the chance to put together its own plan for reducing emissions, because every state has a different energy mix. Some generate more of their power from renewables some from natural gas, or nuclear, or coal. And this plan reflects the fact that not everybody's starting in the same place. So we're giving states the time and the flexibility they need to cut pollution in a way that works for them. And we'll reward the states that take action sooner instead of later, because time is not on our side here. As states work to meet their targets, they can build on the progress that our communities and businesses are already making. A lot of power companies have already begun modernizing their plants, reducing their emissions, and, by the way, creating new jobs in the process. Nearly a dozen states have already set up their own market-based programs to reduce carbon pollution. About half of our states have set energy efficiency targets. More than 35 have set renewable energy targets. Over 1,000 mayors have signed an agreement to cut carbon pollution in their cities. And last week, 13 of our biggest companies, including UPS and Walmart and GM, made bold new commitments to cut their emissions and deploy more clean energy. So the idea of setting standards and cutting carbon pollution is not new. It's not radical. What is new is that starting today, Washington is starting to catch up with the vision of the rest of the country. And by setting these standards, we can actually speed up our transition to a cleaner, safer future. With this clean power plan, by 2030, carbon pollution from our power plants will be 32 percent lower than it was a decade ago. And the, the nerdier way to say that is that we'll be keeping 870 million tons of carbon dioxide pollution out of our atmosphere. So you can hear him, how he's framing the, the issue. We'll talk about framing this issue later on. The uh, uh, part we didn't hear, uh, he said uh, that he, he talked about his future grandchildren. 
doesn't want them to live in a, in a world uh, blighted by climate change. And he said, we're the last generation that will have the ability to do something about this. And I contrast that with Representative Jason Chaffetz, representative from uh, Utah. I, re- I remember this in a debate last year when he was running for re-election. He said he recognizes that there are environmental problems that need addressing, uh, cleaner water, cleaner air. But, he said, human-caused climate change just doesn't exist. Doesn't exist, he said. I well remember that. I think I've quoted him correctly. Uh, so, in, uh, in the book, uh, Andy Hoffman's book, How Culture Shapes the Climate Change Debate, um, he says, At his heart, this split no longer concerns carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases, or climate modeling. Rather, it's the product of contrasting deeply entrenched worldviews. I, I, I think that is definitely true, Andy Hoffman. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it, it, uh, climate change has been caught up in uh, our contemporary culture wars. And so when people hear the word climate change, they may not be hearing CO2 and climate models. They may be hearing things like uh, government tampering in the market or a liberal left-wing agenda or, for some people, even a challenge to the notion of God and divine providence. We're not in charge out there. God's in charge out there. It's hubris to think that there, we, we have become that powerful. Uh, this is a, a significant cultural challenge for us as a as a as a people. And I always I always go to religion. It it just seems to me it's it's becomes a become a quasi religious debate. Either you believe in the science or you or you don't. <laughs> I think the words yeah. of, of of Paul in the in the New Testament: uh, faith is evidence of things not seen. It's 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 almost become a religious debate. Well, and that's that's a big challenge with climate change because you really can't you can't see it, you can't feel it, you can't experience it. Uh, scientists understand it because of large data models and, and amazing computing capacity. And so you do have to, you know, scientists really bristle at the idea that this is a matter of belief. But in some ways it is because uh, most of us will not have access to that scientific information. The question comes down uh, maybe less about belief, but more about trust. You trust scientists, you trust the scientific institutions uh, when they tell us that something is so. And and when we, when we look at information like that, we use what's called motivated reasoning. We look at it through our own cultural filters and lenses, and we'll believe things uh, when they come from people that we trust, and they're framed in a way that fit with our worldview. We look for ways to confirm our worldview. And uh, we all do it. I would like to point this out. We all do it. So interestingly, on climate change, it's the conservative right that resists the notion, the scientific evidence around climate change on uh, the safety of eating GMOs is the liberal left that resists the scientific conclusion. So, so we all do it, and, and we have to find a way to work through it and understand these uh, many and complex social and psychological dimensions to these debates. Just to underline the point, uh, I was reading uh, the comments section. It's, uh, you know, it's always a little dangerous, like a minefield, but this was a very interesting uh, comment thread. Uh, responding to a climate change skeptic uh, video. And uh, the first commenter said he objects to the, the very name, skeptic. He said science itself is skeptical. That's the scientific process. And so the, the debate went on from there. It, it does seem to be a, a, a divide. Uh, so as we go along here, we're going to talk about how do you bridge that divide and how do you, how do you talk across it if it does exist, and I, I think it definitely does. Let me turn to uh, Edwin Stafford. You, uh, you try to frame these issues sidestepping the the climate change debate. Absolutely. You know, Andrew brought up a really good point, and that is that we tend to view the world through our own lenses, our values, uh, what I like to call our mental frames. And these are the beliefs, lifestyles, aspirations, our sensibilities, our religious beliefs. And so what I have done uh, in terms of my marketing of sustainability and of clean technology, as you know, I worked in the wind industry here in Utah and helped kickstart the wind industry in the past uh, decade. And uh, it was very challenging here in Utah. We're a coal-based state. 80% of our electricity is generated from coal. When I started working in wind, it was 94%. Um, We're a very conservative, religious culture here in Utah. And so the idea of framing wind power to kind of capture the heart's of our political leaders required to kind of look at that mental frame and how can I make wind power, which was seen as this hippie liberal technology from California, how do you frame it so that way local conservative religious folks would accept it? And so that was kind of the challenge that uh, I faced when I started in this area. So uh, 
Tell me about that. What? No, for, first of all, we've had conversations off air about, uh, um, uh, I guess, uh, attempts to, well, even bringing up the words climate change. You bring up those two words yeah, and, to and, many conservative legislators in Utah. What happens? Well, they'll shut down. They're not going to listen to you. And, and so that is something we learned early on uh, as to uh, you cannot use environmental arguments if the environment is not a core value or is not a, uh, something that is important as something else, such as your children or your family or economic development. You know? And so you have to kind of look at what are those values that are important and can you frame the sustainable issue such as clean air or wind power or the technology such as electric vehicles to appeal to uh, your target audience so that way they'll accept it. And so uh, what we did here in Utah, and this was back in 2003, 2004, my colleague Kathy Hartman, who's now retired, but she and I were marketing professors here in the Huntsman School, um, we helped the state develop uh, its first education outreach campaign for wind power. And we framed it. We had billboards up and down I-15 with three little kids running through a wind farm, and the billboard said, wind power can fund schools. Now, why this message worked was because at that time, Utah schools were some of the least, you know, had the lowest uh, funding per capita in the country, um, but legislators didn't want to raise taxes to try to solve that. Well, what we showed was is that when you build a wind farm in a community, it generates property taxes, and that increased property taxes paid by the developer, most of it goes to the local school district. So this notion of wind power can fund schools, we had a website on the billboard, and we found that we had thousands of hits on that website, and people were learning that, hey, if you build a wind farm, that's going to generate all this property tax revenues, that's going to benefit my kids. And so this was a way for us to help get the legislature to pass some tax incentives that then eventually led to the Spanish Fork Wind Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, the subject of your, your film, Wind Uprising. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so there's a successful... Um, effort to, to, to frame this in, in non-environmental benefits. Yes, yeah. And, and that seems to be the approach that I've taken, um, and I've recommended other business people to look at. If you want to appeal to mainstream audiences, uh, if the environmental message is not important to them, then you need to lead to other benefits that they're go- that's going to resonate with their worldview, their mm win their hearts, not just their minds. Andy Hoffman, what do you think about this? Uh, if, if, if it's not a part of, the, of your core value system, climate change, the environment, then, then how to reach such a person? Well, I agree entirely with what uh, Dr. Stafford said, that you, you have to make this personally salient. And, uh, I would like to add one dimension. There's a slight tangent. We can get to it later, but you open with the clean power plan. And I would also like to introduce the conversation that for businesses, uh, climate change represents a market shift. Uh, and in any market shift, there'll be winners and losers. And so we have to recognize that, that there are powerful political and economic interests, that their personal self-interest, their economic interests are threatened by this notion. If we shift our energy sources over from fossil fuels to wind or or solar, then then it's clear, you know, some coal-powered states or coal-dependent uh, states are going to lose, fossil fuels are going to lose, and wind and solar is going to win. And that, to many, that in itself makes a lot of people uncomfortable. They see that as just government tampering in the market. Uh, when it comes to appealing to individuals and their frames or their, their worldviews, it does... There are numerous uh, studies to look at what kinds of frames work, and you, you have to pick the frame to fit your audience. When I speak to business audiences, I don't talk about carbon loading or, or CO2. I talk about operational efficiency, consumer demand, cost of capital, and, and that's a way to get this into a language that that particular audience can, can hear. And so some frames that have been studied and, and work with certain audiences, you can frame this as economic competitiveness. If we don't develop the technology, then Germany and China will. We'll buy it from them. We don't want that to happen. Uh, there's a group of retired army generals that frame this as national security. If there's increased climate change, there will be increased instability around the world. The U.S. military will have to do things to respond to that, and we will have to start. They call it uh, climate change a threat multiplier. Uh, you can frame this as risk management. Um, we have, uh, for some people, a low-probability, high-consequence event. Um, on climate change. We also have that in our homes. We buy uh, home insurance. Uh, the odds of my house burning down are low, but uh, the 
economic consequence would be enormous. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, uh, deal with that. So you can frame it as risk management. But the, the frame that, that, that sociologists and psychologists have found the, the best uh, in a, on a broad scale is the issue of health. And it, as climate change starts to have its impact, we'll have hotter, hotter heat waves, colder cold waves, more erratic weather. And particularly in urban centers, if we have elevated temperatures, then the vulnerable in our population are the ones that can hurt and possibly die if they have done in heat waves in Chicago and Paris and elsewhere. And we all have uh, parents or grandparents or young people, children uh, that are at risk for this. And so the health frame is, is quite a potent way to get people to personalize this, make it salient. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, I want to pick up some of those threads. I want to talk about uh, some people's skepticism that corporations are just greenwashing. Uh, and I think it goes to a bit of a skepticism about marketing um, itself, <laughs> that you're just trying to you know, uh, tell me I have a problem so you can uh, sell me a product to, to, uh, to solve that. I'll, I've got a couple of marketing professors here. I, I can talk about that. And uh, if you're a liberal sitting there feeling pretty comfortable, I, I, want, to, I want to follow up on what Andy Hoffman said uh, uh, about uh, GMO. That, that kind of turns it around. We'll talk about that as well and more. And uh, we'd love to have your take on this. How do we frame this debate or this conversation? How do we talk across this divide? Um, the number is 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, an in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation, featuring food, films, speakers and workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at shiftjh.org. Next time on Living on Earth, redesigning busy city streets to make them people-friendly. I want to be able to walk with my kids, to bike with my kids, to drive safely in, my, in the neighborhood where I live. And we just can't do that today because this street is so poorly designed and so unsafe. Safe streets are coming, but it's taking time. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about uh, climate change. We're talking about how to talk about climate change, reframing the issue, or framing the issue. We're talking about green solutions and sustainability. And we're talking with uh, Edwin Stafford, who is a professor of marketing. He's a researcher, public speaker, news commentary writer. He's uh, a documentary film producer. His films include Wind Uprising and Scaling Wind. He's in the Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. And we have with us Andy Hoffman, who is a wholesome professor of sustainable enterprise at the University of Michigan, a position that holds joint appointments in the School of Natural Resources and Environment and the Ross School of Business. And his latest book is How Culture Shapes the Climate Change Debate. That's out from Stanford University Press just this year. Love to know what you think. 1-800-826-1495. How do conversations with your friends or acquaintances go on, on this topic? Uh, 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. I want to play a clip. This is uh, an example we found on the Internet uh, of, of an ad on, on climate change. This is uh, former speakers of the, of the House... Uh, Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich. They're sitting on a on a bench. They're sitting knee to knee, and uh, and this is what they say. Hi, I'm Nancy Pelosi, lifelong Democrat and Speaker of the House. And I'm Newt Gingrich, lifelong Republican, and I used to be Speaker. We don't always see eye to eye, do we, Newt? No, but we do agree our country must take action to address climate change. We need cleaner forms of energy, and we need them fast. If enough of us demand action from our leaders, we can spark the innovation we need. Go to WeCanSolveIt.org. Together, we can do this. So my take on that was that, it, uh, I don't know, I, I don't see it as all that effective, because if you're a conservative who doesn't believe in climate change, don't believe the scientists, then you're maybe just going to think that Newt's a traitor, 
<laughs> to the cause, you know, and and Speaker Pelosi, you're just going to say, well, of course she's going to say that. Uh, um, Andy Hoffman, I don't know what you think. Well, it, it does highlight an important point of this conversation that uh, there is a partisan divide on this issue. The, the, it's about split now, but split mean, 88% of Democrats, I think, according to the last surveys, uh, say that it's real. So they're trying to play on that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it's an interesting point to bring in there that, that Newt Gingrich uh, used to say that climate change is real until he ran for president. And that just mm-hmm. speaks to the the political aspect of this issue. But I do think that's starting to change. There mm-hmm. are numerous Republicans out there that, that would like to come forward and say this is real, but it's just it's it's politically toxic to do that. Um, yeah. Could that change in the coming months or years? Did the Pope's encyclical letter help to drive uh, or create political cover for Republicans to come out on this issue? That It really has to appeal to Republican values if we're going to get both sides of the aisle to attend to this issue. And, uh, you know, I think of Governor John Huntsman, former Utah governor, while he was running for president, he was trying to be the non-conservative in the race. And and one issue that he picked out to kind of uh, give his bona fides on that issue was climate change. Uh, Edwin Stafford, I think you remember that. Absolutely. And and, uh, what what was interesting was, and this was uh, ads from probably about 10 years ago, that he was in commercials for the Environmental Defense Fund, where he and Governor Schwarzenegger and also Governor Schweitzer, who was a Democrat in Montana, all three of them were talking about climate change, and people were shocked because you had two Republicans uh, basically endorsing the idea that climate change was real and that they were saying that their states are moving forward on that. So, And, of course, we know how Governor Huntsman's uh, campaign went. So yes. that, I think uh, Andy Hoffman's point is, is that that's why the conservatives are, are not touching this subject. Uh, I want to talk about the... And Hoffman, you you talked about trust. Do you not so much belief, but trust? Do you trust what scientists are saying has to do with your worldview? I wonder if you'd expand on that. That's it, you know, as we talk across a divide here, I think we have to trust each other first. Well, and you know, I use the word trust throughout the book, and one point that is very important here is that the messenger is as important as the message that people will trust information if it comes from a source that they believe. Uh, I could offer you two names right now, Rush Limbaugh or or Al Gore. Um, Your listeners right now, one of those names, people might be thinking in their head, I'm not going to believe whatever that person says on either side. I could offer two others, NPR and Fox News. And some people may say, I may not believe or I will believe what comes from a particular source. And so it's, it's, it, it, it would be a challenge to say we need to get Americans to start to trust Al Gore across the board. I don't think that's going to happen. What we do need to find is spokespeople uh, that reach specific constituencies to come out and speak on this issue. So while we do have Republicans coming out on this issue, um, almost all, if not all of them, are former politicians. And so mm-hmm. we need to have more sitting politicians start to come forward um, and, and say that this is real. Um, some genuine bona fide conservatives coming forward and saying it's real. We need more spokespeople from the business community. I think this clean power plant is starting to flush some of them out. Uh, as I said, it's a market shift. So there are numerous companies that have come out and endorsed the clean power plant saying, you know, folks, this is where we need to go. And uh, you know, many companies are already preparing for uh, policies that will put a price on carbon. For them, it's not an issue of if, it's an issue of when. And so um, they're preparing for it now uh, in anticipation of seeing that in the future. So we need to have messengers that can speak to uh, many constituencies around the country, not just those uh, that are ready to listen to the three primary spokespeople, which have been scientists, democratic politicians, and environmentalists. So you mentioned, uh, you know, some examples of uh, what that spokesman or spokeswoman would look like. What uh, uh, you know, the, the Pope, does that move the needle on this? What, uh, I guess, uh, conservative uh, Republicans, what, uh, those are the types of people that would need to speak up on this? Well, I think the Pope is significant because, um, I mean, he he is a strong moral voice, which challenges this notion that you, that, that climate, you can't, you know, there are some people who have made the argument, Rush Limbaugh among them, that you can't believe in God and believe in climate change at the same time. I think the Pope kind of blows that out of the water. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but he also could give political cover to conservative Republicans who want to say, look, I mean, it's it, it's enough, enough. You know, the, the Pope is out on this issue. This is a moral issue. It has some moral dimensions to it. it it's something that we need to do for future generations. It, it, um, it, it, I think that did change the debate. But we need more spokespeople from the conservative right, and we need more, more spokespeople from the business community to start to really push the needle further. There are some religious people who are, who are speaking out to uh, interfaith power and light. Utah has a chapter. I've uh, sp- spoken to some of those people. So Edwin Stafford, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, part of this idea of trust is, I think, from a conservative viewpoint, okay, you know, you could say, well, I'm agnostic on this. You know, it may or may not be real human ch- cl- uh, cause ch- climate change, but you, liberal Democrat, you're proposing solutions, quote-unquote, that are going to bankrupt me and are going to, you know, make poor people poorer. And it's, it's, it's going to be bad for the economy. And it's, you know, it's just the the solution is, is bad. Absolutely. And so, and so it kind of comes, comes back to what Dr. Hoffman was talking about in terms of uh, what are people's values. So again, the economic aspect and the idea of jobs and uh, people's livelihoods, that's going to take a precedent over some kind of environmental thing that's going to happen centuries from now, or, it, you know, we're not going to feel it. And so um, what, I, what I think is interesting is the idea of having different voices that people will um, accept in terms of trust. I'm right now doing a content analysis of some clean air ads, and I've found that what's interesting is that some of the environmental groups do not identify themselves on those ads because they know that a conservative who may see this clean air message, if they see the Sierra Club on there, they're not going to believe it. And so just by leaving their name off the ad helps potentially, I think, in my estimation at this point, is that it may give some credibility to the message if you don't know who is actually telling the message. Um, but going back to a conservative group, you know, I was just uh, looking at the Tea Party in Georgia. What's very interesting about that group is that they're pushing solar power. And the reason why they're pushing solar power, it's not because of green, it's not because of climate change, but it's because they're against government-run utility monopolies. And so what's interesting is, is that the belief in Georgia is that the utility monopolies have way too much power over consumers. They charge too much money for electricity. They're forcing Georgians to pay up front for two nuclear power plants. And so a lot of Georgians are very upset that their electricity rates are already going up and they don't even have these nuclear power plants in the ground yet. And so their view is, is that solar energy represents freedom, that if people can have solar panels on their rooftops, they're going to be free of that government-run monopoly mess. And again, that's their view. Uh, and somehow that's going to bring about freedom. So I, I think it comes back that if the Tea Party is backing solar power and why they are, that can be a compelling way of kind of selling at least solutions to climate change, not necessarily climate change itself. Dr. Hoffman, I wonder what you think about that. Is is that part of the future? Is, is how we, uh, from the point of view of those who believe we need action, how you, how you get to action is finding some... Uh, areas of agreement with very unexpected folks like the Tea Party? <laughs> yeah, that, that's called the Green Tea Party. It's a, it's a very interesting movement, and, and as Dr. Stafford points out, it's not about climate change. It's about freedom of choice on where you get your electrons. Um, it, it is important to, to find ways to appeal to multiple constituencies. This is the art of politics. This is the art of compromise. It's how you get things done. Um, it does have some rubs. Um, they will always come in. Uh, you know, one frame that was used early was, uh, you know, we all need to get off foreign oil, so uh, let's start to address this climate change thing. And some on one side, yeah, absolutely, let's get off foreign oil, let's start dealing more oil in the Gulf of Mexico. And the other side, anyway, that's not what I meant. So uh, the frames can get you into trouble as well. And it's, uh, but it is, everyone has different motives, different reasons for doing similar actions. And this is merely acknowledging that and starting to what will motivate people to act. And some people may be motivated to act for altruistic reasons, some more selfish reasons, um, uh, or self-interested reasons, I should say. And so you need to find that sweet spot with uh, multiple constituencies around the country if you're going to get any kind of a, a unified 
uh, response and approach we've got to have a total 100% consensus that the science is clear, but we can still get action for many, many different reasons. I wonder, uh, I'll direct this first to uh, Dr. Hoffman, uh, I wonder what's most important here, what's what's most effective. Um, uh, in my open, I, I made the assumption, this is what I talked to scientists about, that if you're if you're going to be truly effective, you're going to have to uh, take this to the political arena. And I've framed it that way. But I uh, suppose you could bypass that or build uh, grassroots support through marketing, through discussions, and then that filters up to the to the political system. But then we get back to the political system yeah. is broken. So which is more important, do you think, the political arena or the individual lifestyle arena? Well, all of the element of the was that uh, individual action does matter and and individual Catholics that he was speaking to but others as well should take actions to reduce their impact uh, he, he really framed around an issue of equity that uh, we have a finite amount of resources and right now they're not distributed fairly um, but it, it does eventually it, you know we do need individual action is great I support it I try and practice it myself but at the end of the day, this is a huge institutional problem, and we need to have a shift in the market, and we need to have policy instruments to try and drive or nudge that shift in a certain direction. So it does have to enter the political realm. And a lot of work in sociology and psychology right now on this question is trying to highlight what are the differences on the left and the right. And some things they come up with are uh, on the left, it's more communitarian. It's more about the collective. On the right, it's more about the individual. How do we bridge that gap where we focus on our, our group interests, but we also focus on individual responsibility? On the left, um, they see the market will run amok. Government regulation is necessary. To keep on the right, the market solves problems, and government regulation is an unwarranted intrusion in the market. How do we bridge that gap? Um, the solutions to this, are going to require much more clever and creative thinking than simply a battle with winner takes all and one side is going to bludgeon the other into submission to say that climate change is real. That that scenario is not going to happen. And uh, I think w- if I could f- follow up with, with everything that you just said, I'll direct this to, to Dr. Stafford. Um, sometimes we get paralysis. And I think sometimes the message uh, gets in the way of itself, that uh, this is a huge problem, it's imminent. Uh, President Obama says we're the last generation to be able to do something about it. (laughs) And so, you know, maybe emotionally we just head for the hills. Yeah, and I think that's one of the challenges you have with a fear um, type of uh, appeal, uh, and that is very often people feel fatigued by fear, they feel uh, fatigued, uh, uh, helpless, and so if you frame it as that, you know, this is it, we are the last generation to, you know, I'm, I'm not criticizing President Obama's uh, speech, but I'm just saying that, that I think that kind of framing can be a turnoff to people because they feel that, well, wait a minute, we're, we're very, you know, uh, innovative. We, we've solved, we've been to the moon, we've, you know, we've conquered a lot of these challenges. And so uh, perhaps another frame of more inspiration or that, you know, can you paint a picture as to what the future is going to be? Um, one of the things that I've found that appeals to our legislators about renewable energy is price stability. Um, you know, Dr. Hoffman talked about risk and risk management, and I have found that to be a very effective tool when talking to conservatives because risk is something that they is clearly an important, heartfelt issue. And when you start talking about wind power, that the price of wind today is going to be the same as it is 20 years from now, but we don't know what the price of gas or oil or coal are going to be 20 years from now, that resonates with them. And they start thinking, well, yeah, price stability, I definitely want that in my energy portfolio. And so, uh, again, what are those, what's the vision that we can sell to people about why we should move into this direction? Mm-hmm. Let's take a break when we come can back. Uh, yeah, yes, go ahead. Thing. Yes. It's interesting. Um, uh, a lot of companies are adding uh, renewable energy, uh, installing it on a lot of big box retailers um, uh, for that very reason. They want price stability in their energy costs going forward. Yeah, yeah, excellent point. Um, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, a follow-up on uh, what Andy Hoffman said. Uh, we need uh, innovative, creative 
thinking and solutions. And uh, I want to start off the next segment talking about the most impactful part of Wind Uprising for me, Dr. Stafford, which was this scene in the city council meeting where this young mayor <laughs> uses Stephen Covey principles, one of the seven habits. <laughs> and, it, and the thing that amazed me, it actually worked. You know, you, you, you read about this and you, it's, all, it's all theory. This actually worked in this meeting. We'll talk about that and some creative, uh, potential creative solutions following the break. Ten years after Katrina, New Orleans has come way back, but there is now a whole different set of problems. They entrusted me to take a loan application, and it's taking six months, and they still don't have an answer. I'm Kai Rizdal. A city once with too much water now has a banking desert. That's next time on Marketplace from APM. That's this evening at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Next week, Marketplace moves to its 6.30 time in our evening lineup, followed by Access Utah and As It Happens. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, an in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation, featuring food, films, speakers, and workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at shiftjh.org. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I've had conversations with scientists uh, over time to go something like this. I say a significant percentage of Americans or Utahns don't believe in human-caused climate change. And they say, but they should. The science is overwhelming. And then I respond, but they don't. And if effective political action is going to happen, they'll need to be convinced. Well, they should, but they don't. But they should. That's how the conversation goes. Maybe you've had similar conversations I admit uh, one of my motivations, I'm a little bit mischievous, and I just like to you know, see the frustration level going up a little bit to get their blood pressure up. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I'm trying to get across a point that if, uh, if action is going to happen, they're going to have to convince more people than, than they have. And I, I readily recognize it's not scientists' primary job to convince uh, others. They, they're supposed to do science. But that uh, gets us to the conversation today. How do you frame the conversation? How do you reach across that divide uh, to get to some solutions that uh, many people think are very much uh, needed? And you can join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. We have with us Edwin Stafford, who is professor of marketing, researcher, public speaker, uh, documentary film producer. His films include Wind Uprising and Scaling Wind. Andrew Hoffman is a wholesome professor of sustainable enterprise at University of Michigan, and his latest book is How Culture Shapes the Climate Change Debate. That's out this year from Stanford University Press. So I want to begin this last segment of the program with that scene from Wind Uprising. I wonder if you could describe this. Absolutely. And so what's happening here is that uh, as uh, Tracy Livingston is about to break ground to develop his wind farm, uh, there's a major uprising. In fact, we call the film Wind Uprising because there was a citizen uprising of people who uh, suddenly saw that these windmills were going to be coming close to their homes, and uh, they go to a city council meeting to try to put a moratorium um, on, the, uh, on the wind project. Uh, maybe 300 people are there. We capture a lot of it from actual footage from the meetings, very heated um, uh, you know, scene and, and uh, episode. What was really interesting was that Mayor Thomas, um, who actually had worked with um, Covey, uh, uses Covey principles, Stephen Covey principles, to try to resolve the issue. And, and it was very simple. He just basically said, put yourself in, in Tracy's shoes, the developer's shoes, put yourself in your own shoes, and let's see if we can try to work out a compromise. And they did by actually sitting down and moving the project away from homes. Um, what we saw was that once the citizens were able to have input on the development of this project, they became supportive of it. And so I think this is perhaps maybe what you're trying to get at is that is this part of the solution for climate change, that if we do uh, embrace what skeptics or opponents are saying, I, I'm thinking that if we could come yeah. up with some kind of compromises on this. Yeah, think win-win is yeah. the yes. habit four or five, I think. Yes. Uh, if you're a if you're a Covey <laughs> acolyte, I I you know I'll proudly say that I am. Yes. I'm rereading Seven Habits right now, I but but the I think the thing that struck me was 
that actually worked. You, yes. know, you, you read you read these principles, but the the mayor you know said let's step back, let's try to come up with a win win solution. They moved the the uh, the windmills uh, a little further up the caddy, and everybody was happy. Absolutely, and in fact, the winds were better up there, mm-hmm. so it was actually a better situation. So let's uh, go uh, next. I'll, I'll get a response from. Uh, uh, Professor Hoffman, after we get to uh, our first caller, who's Margaret in Vernal. Margaret, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, well, I, I wanted to mention, I haven't heard you emphasize the fact that both wind and sun is uh, free. We don't have to pay for it as we would gas or coal or anything else. Yeah, that's that, that's true. I, well, there are some upfront costs, I guess, but once it gets going. Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, I have a solar Thank panel. You. Thank you. I have a solar oh, panel. Thank you, Margaret. Go ahead. Uh, th- yes, uh, I have a solar panel on my house, and uh, it covers over a third of my electricity of my home. I don't do anything with it. It just sits there and produces power for me. Now, it is going to take 11 years to pay for itself. I hope I live that long. I, <laughs> but mm. the point is, is that, um, you know, after it's paid for, then it's free electricity uh, for my home um, for the next, uh, you know, 20, 30 years for that house. And so... Mm. Uh, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, Dr. Hoffman brought up about how many corporations are putting uh, renewable energy systems uh, on their rooftops. Walmart is building wind farms. Amazon is bought into wind farms. Apple Computer is going to be 100%. Their new headquarters in Cupertino is supposed to be completely covered with solar, uh, and it's supposed to be 100% um, renewable energy. Uh, so, so that is now. That is happening now. And so I think companies are seeing the value of renewable energy, and that's primarily a risk hedge for them to have price-stable energy going forward. And this is, I would imagine, that the bottom line has to enter in. They wouldn't be doing this if they were going to lose money on it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Here's a, an email from uh, from Chad and Roosevelt, and I'll direct this first to, uh, to Dr. Hoffman. Uh, his number one point, uh, he says, uh, here are a couple of my thoughts on this issue. Number one, I'm tired of fellow members of the LDS Church saying climate change is real but is a natural process not being affected by humans. I wish LDS Church leaders would make a statement accepting the fact that humans are causing climate change and that climate change is hurting people. That's his first point. So, Dr. Hoffman, you talked earlier about how you know perhaps we need... Um, you know, more people to step forward, prominent people to step forward. He's suggesting that uh, top LDS church leaders ought to step forward on this issue. Yeah, I think that the religion is a very important part of this debate, again, going back to the Pope's encyclical. Uh, if people hear that climate change is real, that it is something that we need to attend to as part of our moral and religious responsibility, that will have far more impact on our beliefs and our behavior than a carbon price or uh, some kind of a, an incentive from the government. So um, the, there's a, a patriarch from the Greek Orthodox Church, Bartholomew, I believe it's the first, they call him the Green Patriarch. He's been talking about this. Uh, the Dalai Lama has been talking about this. Uh, there was recently a Muslim statement endorsing the Pope's encyclical. So I, I do think that religion plays a critical role here in motivating people to, I don't want to say change their beliefs, but fit climate change in with existing beliefs. Um, do we need to re-examine um, the Genesis mandate and what that means and our role within nature that God has provided? Um, do we start to think about this and being consistent with our our religious beliefs? That, that to me, is critical and key. Here's to Chad's second point, and I'm grateful he's taking us back to GMOs, which Dr. Hoffman brought up earlier in the program. I wanted to get back to it. So here's Chad's statement on on that. He says, I think comparing climate change to GMO science is a false equivalence. It seems to me that uh, most of the scientists who are saying GMOs are safe work for Monsanto and other companies making GMOs, or they work for universities that receive large amounts of money from companies that make GMOs. I don't think there's the same kind of uh, financial incentive for scientists who's to, uh, to say climate change is being caused by people. On the contrary, petroleum companies have tried to offer financial incentives for scientists to deny climate change. That's uh, Chad's point. So, Dr. Hoffman, I wonder what you think about that. Well, it's an interesting argument because those that deny the science of climate change will say the exact same thing, that, that, that scientists will only get grants. If they say climate change is real, they will only get published if they say climate change is real. So um, he's using an argument that, that the scientists around GMO safety are have somehow been corrupted, but those who deny the science of climate change would say the exact same thing. 
in mm. uh, both cases, I, I don't think that's true. And I would add specifically that on GMOs, it's the safety of eating them. There's a whole other set of issues about what they might do in the natural environment that is separate from that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a recent study that came out by the, the American Association for the Advancement of Science uh, done with the Pew Research Center. It's very interesting. They, they had all these issues, and where do scientists land, and where do the public land, and where are the gaps the widest? And issues that start to come up are GMOs, uh, climate change, um, ac- uh, vaccines and autism, a very interesting debate um, where uh, some people have taken issue, uh, positions that are totally at variance with the scientific community. So I, I bring up that example not uh, on GMOs, not as an example of equivalence, just to show that the processes are at play and all of us who are human will fall prey to them. We just have a couple of minutes left, uh, so we'll give a minute first to Dr. Stafford. Just to, to sum up, what are your final thoughts? Sure. Let, let me just follow up on the LDS Church. It's been my observation that the LDS Church may not have a statement specifically on climate change that I'm aware of, but they have been moving toward becoming more green. I took a tour of the Ogden Temple this past summer, and one of the things that they were highlighting was that how energy efficient that temple was, and that was a major point that they had made to visitors of that. I've also been reading about how new stake centers and new um, ward houses are being built to be much more energy efficient. And the framing of it is, is that, you know, we're trying to protect the tithes of our members. I mean, we don't want to build some inefficient, flabby building that's just going to guzzle tithing, you know, people's tithes. And so there is, I think there is a movement going on in the church. And uh, so we are seeing that. coming about. And just a, just a minute left, um, Dr. Hoffman, uh, what, what are your final thoughts here? Well, it, it, this is a, to me, this is a natural process we're going through. Uh, climate change is a fundamental shift in how we view the environment around us uh, and our role within it. And so it's natural that we would have this turmoil, this conflict, uh, this kind of a debate. Um, we need to change our way of thinking in order to really come to grips with it. A lot of people get very comfortable with that thing, human and social systems, um, but I would like to point out that social systems can change very, very quickly in the wake of a, a major event. Look how 9-11 changed our culture radically. Um, I, you know, So we're moving along. We're trying to come to grips with this as a people, and um, uh, I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll, we'll work this one out. We've been talking with Andy Hoffman, who is... Uh Wholesome Professor of Sustainable Enterprise at the University of Michigan. His book is How Culture Shapes the Climate Change Debate. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Tom. And Edwin Stafford is a Professor of Marketing in the Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. His films mention those wind uprising and scaling wind. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much, Tom. And uh, coming up tomorrow, I will uh, repeat my conversation from a couple of years ago with singer-songwriter Janice Ian. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. What would you do if you wanted to sleep in but The Rock wouldn't let you? There's a reality TV show I surfed into the other day called Wake Up Call. In this show, Dwayne The Rock Johnson shows up in people's dead-end lives with a camera crew and proceeds to whip them into shape and get them back on their feet. For those of you who only watch independent films and dark, critically acclaimed dramas that never include explosions, The Rock is a muscular, bald-headed guy who used to be a professional wrestler but has gone on to become an action movie hero. He's in at least 20 of the Fast and Furious movies, and in films like G.I. Joe, The Scorpion King, and the critically acclaimed Journey to the Center of the Earth. I like him because he looks a lot like me. I've only seen 1.5 episodes of this new show, but it appears that he is the same tough but kind character he usually plays in the movies. He's strong, he's unshakable, he's brave, and for some unknown reason, he's treating you like a Navy SEAL from a previous movie who once saved his life. He's qualified to do this because of what he's done in his own life, apparently, and I've got to think because of what he's done on the big screen. Somehow he's convinced us that he is the rock on or off the big screen. But I think this is fascinating, and I'm okay with it, because I like to believe that he would be my best friend if only he knew me better. And he would help me get in shape, take revenge on past bully bosses, and get a new car that is not a station wagon. Yet I can't shake this nagging feeling that he's not real. In real life, 
Is he really this invincible guy that could take out Iran's nuclear program and make all the Republican candidates wait a year to start campaigning just by force of character? If so, why doesn't he do that for all of us now? I love Rocky movies. Yet I know I would have mixed emotions if Sylvester Stallone showed up on my doorstep wearing a dirty sweatshirt with a camera crew in tow, in character, as Rocky. Yo, Steve, your wife asked me to come here and you were like, fix your head and teach you some one-arm push-ups, he might say. You know, if you don't mind me doing that too much. First it would be cool, but I'm sure it would get very uncomfortable fast. I would come home at the end of a long day to prepare my dinner, which would not include a glass of raw eggs, and get ready to relax by eating pizza and watching TV. He'd be there standing next to me, wearing those fingerless gloves, throwing the ball against our dining room wall, and he would say, Hey, you know, I know genius or nothing like that, but wouldn't it be better if you went for a run down along the railroad tracks? I mean, I mean Mickey would never let me eat this stuff. Now, if you could hang out with the Bruce Willis diehard character, John McClane, well, you could eat pizza, Cheetos, and even smoke a cigar. But he'd also have you crawling through air ducts, getting blasted off your feet in explosions, and taping guns to your bare back. You could end up covered in spiders or encased in carbonite if you hung out with one of the characters Harrison Ford plays. Just who do you respect enough that they could give you a wake-up call? I like to be a really clean, efficient, organized person, but there aren't many film role models I can turn to for inspiration when it comes to time management. Action heroes don't make lists. That's just the truth I've come to accept. As long as we're pretending movie action heroes are real, maybe a better reality show would be me helping them fix their lives. I could ask them simple questions like, John, can you think of a way to deal with this problem without blowing it up? I know they're terrorists, but if you invested a little effort in a diplomatic email, you might win them over to your point of view without killing them. Let's come up with some talking points. Or, Rocky, you're getting killed out there. He's strong, but you're better than he is. Let's make a list on your arm of all the reasons why you're a better fighter than Clubber Lane that you can take with you into the third round. Or, Indiana, let's, let's think this thing through before you go in that cave. What will you do if the walls start shooting blow darts? Did you check to see if there are any French archaeologists hiding in the bushes who might just take your treasure after you risk your life to grab it? Do you even have your vision statement done yet? Cue announcer. There was no plan. There were no priorities. There were no direction until he came along. Indiana Jones and the List Crusade. Planning to come to a theater near you soon. This is Steve Eaton. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.